Now, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love. Thank you for being here. As we open the scriptures, Lord, as we always pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our understanding, we could see what you have for us tonight, make good sense of it, and put it into practice, and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I have a picture, a famous painting on George Washington's deathbed scene to cheer you up this evening. (laughs) Now, when life is coming to a close, a person's last words can be very profound and revealing. Quite a contrast between faith and unbelief is seen during those last hours. Some really great realizations. Queen Elizabeth, the one who died in 1603, said, all my possession I'd give for a moment of time. Uh, The attitude of defiance is seen. You've heard this before, no doubt. Joan Crawford, that uh, legacy, that legendary olden um, days movie star, famous for Mommy Dearest, right? Uh, And in keeping with that character, uh, her last words were, well, she saw a housekeeper beginning to pray out loud for her as she labored there, and uh, she said, She actually cussed and then said, don't you dare ask God to help me. It's not good. Uh, We see evidence of a struggle. Roman Emperor Julian of the fourth century, his last words, in life he had attempted to reverse the official uh, endorsement of Christianity by the empire. And then as he lay dying, he said, you have won, O Galilean. Kind of... Hopefully that was followed by a little confession and um, penance of repentance. Amen? Amen. Princess Diana was really sad. Uh, She just kept saying, oh my God, oh my God, what has happened? Those are her last words. Contrasted with hope and courage, Martin Luther uh, said, salvation comes from our God and by him we escape death. His last words. Uh, contrasted also with peace and praise. Uh, The writer of the hymn, Rock of Ages, his last words, I enjoy heaven already in my soul. My prayers are already converting into praise. Uh, So inspiration, you know, Stephen, the martyr we're gonna take a look at soon uh, on Sunday, Acts chapter uh, six and seven and eight there. His last words is they're putting him to death for his witness for Jesus Christ is, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And so that really affected one young man who was in the crowd. His name was Saul. And uh, he comes to faith soon after that. Many commentators say that that last few words, that wonderful godly attitude of forgiveness really impacted uh, Saul and helped him to open his heart. Now that we're in the, thank you for that uh, portrait, we're in the final pages of uh, 2 Samuel and the final phases of King David's life. Uh, And so we're going to hear tonight uh, his 
last words, David's last words there in chapter 22. So if you've made your way there to actually chapter 23, we looked at 22 last week and it was actually the early form of Psalm 18, kind of David's lifelong song. And now tonight the actual literal last poem of seven verse poem, Psalm, that David composed before he died, his famous last words. And so we're going to take a look at that tonight. Verses 1 through 7. These are the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made me an everlasting covenant arranged and secured in every part? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? That evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear, and they are burned up where they lie. So we're going to reflect on this uh, little paragraph, seven verse little Psalm, the psalm is from the Greek or Latin. The word psalm, where we get in English, is, uh, means to play with the harp. And so he was a harpist, he was a composer. The Holy Spirit used him to write Holy Scripture as we know the psalm. So what do we have here? We don't have the last words like David was on his deathbed and said this and then died. This is the last work that he's ever done uh, in is a literary speaking that he wrote down and that we have before he died, where he expresses his heart and his longing. You know, we call that a swan song. The ancients believed that swans rarely sang and they rarely did until the hours before they died. And so that's when they burst into this lovely song. And so hence the term a swan song, the last kind of thing that we do that's beautiful uh, work or something like that before we pass from this life. And so we see his swan song tonight. Uh, Let's see what bubbled up to the surface. Let's take a look at these seven verses because you can really grasp a lot of what's going on in the life of somebody who was so blessed and so used by God, perhaps uh, one of the greatest Bible heroes of all time. And so we get to see really what makes this guy tick, kind of like last week with Psalm 18 there in uh, chapter 22. And so if you're taking notes, there are four kinds of things in these seven little verses. First of all, and I think this is the key to uh, the, the success of David. Number one, David knows who he is. Number two, David knows the qualities that make a good leader. Number three, David knows he wasn't perfect. And number four, David knows that good will always win over evil. Now, first of all, I see less is more because you've got these seven little verses, but there's a lot packed in there. Remember our Puritan Bible scholar from the 1600s, John Trapp? I like to quote him a lot. He said this about 
these verses. In just a few words, David acknowledges God's benefits and blessing, confesses sin, professes his faith and trust, comforts himself in God's promise, and warns unbelievers of their destruction, all in seven small, short verses with infinite meaning. And so let's take a look at, first of all, David knows who he is in the Lord. Verses one and two. First of all, David, son of Jesse, son of Jesse, his humble roots, an ordinary life, uh, the son of a farmer out in the middle of Boonville somewhere, not literally Boonville, but out, out in the middle of the sticks there. Uh, uh, just a nobody without God, and he knows that. You remember 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel the prophet was mourning the death, the, the, the firing, I should say, of King Saul. And so the Lord says, hey, get up. It's time to move forward. I've got a plan. I'd like you to go to the house of Jesse. He's got seven sons. One of them is going to be the next king. So he goes out there, you'll recall, and uh, he tells dad, you know, I'm looking for one of your sons. We're going to have a big barbecue festival unto the Lord tonight. And one of them is going to be anointed. And so all seven, uh, all six of them prayed by him. And he says, is this it? Do you have any other sons? And he says, oh, yeah, there's one, you know. And he's, David, seriously? He's out in the back with the sheep. You know, you want to talk to him? He, he's the son of Jesse, he may sit on the throne, he may be favored by God, but he always remembers he was a, a kind of a nobody from a no, no man's land out there. He knows that every good thing in his life is from God because he remembers who he is without God. He knows who he is, and part of that is he's son of Jesse, right? The other thing is David is a, a person God chose to bless because he says exalted by God, he, he understands that he's a man uh, to whom God gave wonderful success. You know, when he says to Goliath, you come after me with your weaponry, but I come after you in the name of the Lord. And it's by his great power that David does anything uh, successful. He knows who, who he is, his humble beginnings. He knows that it's God's power working in him that causes him to be exalted. Uh, David also knows that he's been anointed. That word, wonderful word, it just means chosen by God to speak his words. And he's saying there in verses one and two, he says, God Almighty uses my mouth and my tongue to speak his words. He recognizes that he's a channel of the Most High God, an ambassador, a representative. Uh, and then it calls him the sweet psalmist of Israel. Uh, that word means to sing songs to Israel for God's people. It means pleasant, delightful, sweet. King James has sweet singer of songs, lovely, agreeable. He knows what his job is to build people up and to help people have a relationship with the Lord. Now, I've said all that to say this, that the Christian can say everything that is said about David here. Uh, number one, our humble beginnings. Do you know who you are? Do I know who I am? We are not sons of Jesse, but we're sons of Adam, right? And so we all, who are we without Christ? 
Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. And so to remember that is to have humility, and humility precedes honor, the Proverbs say. Proverbs 15, verse 33. Uh, I know who I am without him. Without him, I'm nothing. With him, everything is possible. Uh, Secondly, we can say we're blessed by God. We're exalted by his hand. We've been afforded the greatest honor. It says in Ephesians that we've been chosen. That's the same word as anointed. Uh, It's the same idea that, that David is wowed by. That God Almighty had a selection and he chose. Ephesians chapter one says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise and glory of his grace, which is freely given us in the one he loves. You remember in junior high and in high school, unfortunately, uh, you know, sports teams, when they choose two captains and then the captains came out to the middle where everybody could see, and then they had to choose teams. And all of us, sheep, right, were lined up in a big group. And then here we go with the popularity contest, right? And uh, they start choosing sides. Now, if you're an athletic kind of person, you have a happy memory right now. How many of you have a happy memory? Good evening, and God bless you. Run along now. (laughs) How many of you have kind of a sad memory about that? Yeah, so do I. Welcome. Now, the captain of the universe comes out, and you're the number one choice. David's singing about that. That's how he lives his life. He says, wow, God of the universe had a choice, and he said, I choose you. Let that sink in. Predestined in love. And the word, I'm sorry, nobody understands it. We, nobody, nobody, no theologian, no scholar, nobody can explain it. We don't get it. But the word means to have a selection of a group and to choose, to pick. We have a choice. He chooses. They're both working. And you know what all I can say is I remember the feeling of not being chosen. I remember the humiliation and the longing to be wanted. And I don't... I'm not lacking that in Christ. I feel that every day. David felt that and sang his songs about that. He said uh, his word was on his tongue, the, the word of the living God. And Christ says, you're my ambassador. Uh, I, I, it's as if Christ is speaking through us. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse, around verse 20. God making his appeal through our lips to people. That's pretty amazing. And also, we're, you know, we know who we are. We're supposed to be singing sweet songs, building people up. Uh, Ephesians says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which builds others up. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which builds somebody up. That's a beautiful verse, and that's what we're all about. So do you know who you are? He knew who he was. He he knew who he was with the Lord, uh, without the Lord. Ephesians 2.20 says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word workmanship you've heard many times is the word poema, 
which means poem, where we get our word poem. It means masterpiece or a piece of art. We are God's poem. We are God's song. So we're, who are you? You're supposed to be singing his song. You're his song. You're, you're, you're his expression to this world. And so David knows who he is. He, he realizes who he is without God. He realizes uh, who he is with God, the honor God has afforded him. He realizes how God wants to use him to encourage people. So he knows who he is. You've got to know who you are in Christ. Number two, David knows what qualities make a godly leader. Uh, and that also works for us for what makes a strong Christian. Uh, verses three and four, he says the person must lead righteously and the person who leads, leads in the fear of the Lord. So two essential ingredients in David's life that help to make him great. Number one, I, I got a chance when I was an intern at a, at a church back in Bible college. For the summer, I was a pastoral intern. And they gave me an assignment to interview a retired missionary to Africa. He was a missionary to Africa with his wife from 1930 to 1980. 50 years in Africa. So I went into their little cottage, their parsonage where they were retired, and I interviewed them. One of the questions I asked him is, what is the number one quality a minister or a Christian really needs to be productive and successful and blessed in this life? Number one quality. Never forget it. This is 25, 30 years ago. And he says to me, moral fortitude. Moral fortitude. Well, you know, I didn't even really realize what he meant by that. And, you know, what he means by that is the strength and the resolve to do the right thing all the time. It's to be all about goodness, biblical goodness, uh, doing the right thing. Uh, I read James this morning for my devotions. It goes pretty fast. You know, usually I avoid James because, you know, he's so strong. <laughs> Some mornings, you know, you're not in the mood for James, right? The club, boom, you know, but it, it's good. It's good. And, 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 and he closes out there. He says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. That's one way to define doing the right thing. It's so important. It's, it, it's, it's the core of who we are. Choosing to love, choosing to forgive, choosing to serve, choosing to die to self, choosing to obey, choosing the right, choosing the truth, choosing the light all the time. That's what he says. That's what his life is all about. And then doing the right thing because he recognizes that the God of justice will review his life work and he, God will require an accounting about how he lived his life. And so too for us, that's the fear of the Lord. So two qualities there, right? He knows what God, uh, how, what makes a strong, healthy Christian leader and it's these two things living righteously in the fear of the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 1.7 says that uh, the fear of the Lord is where knowledge starts. You, you don't even have knowledge, you don't have wisdom, unless you revere God. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. There's no knowledge, no wisdom, no understanding if you don't have the foundation of a knowledge of God and a reverence for him as the most high. I like this quote, doing the right thing Letting goodness be our primary goal in all things in this life might not be an easy goal, 
but it comes easier with the holy promise that our life's work will one day bear perfect scrutiny of the living God. You know, in Romans 14, Paul the Apostle is addressing Christians who are giving each other a hard time. And it's about kind of uh, disputable matters, like diet, eating vegetables or eating meat offered to idols from the butcher shop and all of that stuff, uh, worshiping on certain days. And he said, you guys are judging each other. It's a waste of time. He said, you need to stop doing that. Who, who are you to be judging them anyway on disputable matters where there's no black and white, where it's gray? You shouldn't be doing that, he says, because we will all, and I quote, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. Verse 12 of Romans 14, so then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. He's speaking to Christians. Our sins are covered, yes, but from Christ, the day you accepted Christ until the day you see his face in the flesh, those days will be evaluated for faithfulness. And there will be reward or loss of reward as we've talked about a lot. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15 talks about that. And so that helps us with the fear of the Lord. And so those two necessary ingredients. Fear of the Lord defined, you know, it's not that we're afraid of God like hiding under the bed kind of thing. It's not even that word. It's the word that means kind of letting the majestic constant abiding presence of the almighty God guide our thoughts, bridle our tongues, motivate our lives, and restrain our sinning. It's one thing to say, yeah, I know about God. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present. And there's lots of creeds about that. You know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, born of a virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, right? And so on. That gets repeated by millions of people every single Sunday. But it's not enough to know these things. Our lives have to show these things. So you may be able to say, I believe God is all-powerful, but it'd be better to show that by the way you live. Amen? Okay, so notice the beautiful outcome if you have these two qualities. When you're all about doing the right thing by God, living scripturally, and you have a reverence for God, then he says, you'll live a beautiful life. Here's the text. You're like the light of the morning, like the sunrise bursting forth in a cloudless sky, like the refreshing rains that bring tender grass from the earth. So here in the text it says, Light of the morning at sunrise, the beauty of dawn, that's what you'll be like without a cloud in the sky, bright, beautiful, and stunning. Anybody want a beautiful life? It says, be all about doing the right thing and have reverence for God, and you're going to be like that. Is there anything more captivating than a sunrise? Anything more beautiful? Such lives chase away darkness, light the way for others in trouble, um, Jesus said, you're light of the world. You're like a city at night that you see on a hill illuminating uh, the darkness. That's who we're supposed to be. That's who we are. Uh, I remember reading a testimony about plane crash survivors, and they were saying it was so dark inside, 
after the plane crashed that all they could see was the lighted floors guiding them to the door of escape. That's who we are when we live the right way before God and have a reverence for God. Those two ingredients, he says, you'll be like the beautiful sunrise. Uh, can you imagine getting to heaven and somebody saying, you know, by the way you loved God, by the way you lived in the right way with God and your reverence for God, that showed me the path to life. I, I came to heaven because of seeing your life and hearing the word of God through your lips, those kinds of things will be the most rewarding thing of all to know that our lives impacted somebody else. I met three people who came here to church on Sunday, this Sunday, from Summerfest. Three people who are not going to church at all. Three people who loved being here on Sunday morning. And, and one of them described it just in terms of, I just really feel drawn. And, and when I was there at the park, I just felt just warm and loved. It just felt right. It just felt like this is the place I should be. And that's why I'm here Sunday morning. And it's still kind of, I'm not, I haven't put all the pieces together, he said. But I know I'm supposed to be here. It feels so right. Now, now what happened there? Exactly what we're talking about. Shining the light. Somebody else is going to come to know the Lord because of our presence there that day. That's just an awesome thing. So a beautiful life, wonderfully helping others uh, because we're all about doing life God's way and because we have a, a reverence for his power. I do like the, the secondary thing it says. It says the brightness that calls forth the grass to grow. And so when we live in this way, we create an environment that's nurturing, that people can grow. And, and uh, others around us benefit from the shine, you know, and they become uh, who they're supposed to be. They reach their fullest potential in him. So uh, your life and my life, it should nurture and nourish others, not hinder them. So let's review. David knows who he is. David knows what makes a good, strong Christian or a leader. And number three, David knows he wasn't perfect. Now, this is a really cool verse here, verse five. There's a couple of ways to understand it. It's very complicated in Hebrew. You could go one of two ways. Uh, the first way, the NIV way. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made an everlasting promise to me? Kind of like a rhetorical question. It can go that way. Or number two, it could mean this. Even though my house is not right with God, Yet has he made an everlasting promise to me. Most scholars go with the latter instead of the former. Uh, King James has it that way. Um, Although my house be not so with God, King James, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. The meaning is, is really clear. Even though me and my family have not been right with God, even in the midst of my crazy, dysfunctional life and all my slip-ups and how my sons and daughters have gone astray, God promises uh, to me, stand, because they're not based on my craziness or my family or my failures. The family line will endure to Christ. Salvation is a grace thing. David Guzik said this about this verse, human perspective. From one perspective, David's reign was a disaster. 
He suffered from a dark scandal during his reign. He suffered under repeated family crises, uh, under an attempted insurrection from his own son, under a civil war, and yet God made him some promises. They had nothing to do with all of that mess. God makes unilateral promises to us. Our salvation is not based on anything we have done. Charles Spurgeon preached a whole sermon on this verse, verse five in the King James. It's called David's Dying Song, which it is his last words. And it was preached on April 15th, 1855. And here's a part, just a paragraph. What person is there in the whole human race who, if they had to write their life story, would not need to use a great many, even those, or the word but? All the heroes in the sacred word always have an although or a however before the story is fully told. Naaman was a mighty man of courage, but he was a leper. Solomon was the wisest man in in all the earth, but he was led astray by his many wives. There seems to be in every life some dark flaw in the marble pillar, some discord in the music, some alloy in the gold. Just a little bit more. We also feel that our house is not so with God. We know that to be true. Though in the person of Jesus, we're free from our sins and clean as the angels are. Yet when we stand before God and we're honest with ourselves, we know that our lives fell short and we're not as we should be. But we praise him for his grace and mercy that even though such and such, the promises of God still prevail. Love that, amen? That's encouraging. Uh, Verse five is really the gospel Uh, preview. David's saying, even though I've made mistakes, uh, even though my son turned uh, against me and the Lord divided the kingdom, caused me heartbreak, even though I fell into sin of my own, even though my family wasn't right with God, or even though my house be not so with God, yet he's made me promises. And these promises are good and they're independent of my ups and downs, ins and outs, success or failures. I love Romans chapter nine and verse 16. So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. The crux of the gospel is in two thoughts. But I, yet still, God. Oh, wait a second here. Uh, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to reign and rule with him forever, even though my prayer life is terrible, yet still, yes, you shall. Even though my marriage is still struggling, even though I have problems controlling my thoughts and my words, even though this, even though that, yet still, that's the gospel, that's the good news. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, period. Even though, yeah, Fill in your even though. You're in the darkness of your uh, secret place of your own mind and thoughts right now. And so you can pull up whatever you want. Nobody's going to even know. You look like you're just listening to me, right? (laughs) So go ahead and pull it up. Even though? I mean, start with Christ. Start when you had a full knowledge of Christ and then drudge up the worst possible thing and say, even though? Yeah, even though. Yet still. He's made an eternal covenant with you, not based on your behavior, but based on his blood. This cup is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. That's the basis 
for the promises, and David knew that. So he says, even if my family's not uh, you know, perfect, even though I've got this horrendous nightmare that everybody's read about, the whole world knows about, yet even still he's made an eternal covenant with me that one day there's gonna be a savior who might look like me because he's gonna be on his human side related to me because God promised that to me. Not based on my family, not based on my quiet times, not based on my thought life, not based on any of that, but based on his mercy and his goodness. And that's the gospel right there. My salvation is secure, he says. Ultimately, every desire of mine will be granted. Just wonderful. So let's review. We're almost done. David knows who he is, verses one and two. David knows what makes a good leader, verses three and four. Number three, David knows he's less than perfect, verse five. And now finally, last verse, David knows that good triumphs over evil. Kind of hard to get at what six and seven are saying, really. So let me read it in the New Living Translation. But the godless are like thorns to be thrown away, for they tear the hand that touches them. So one must use iron tools to chop them down, and they will be totally consumed by fire. That's the very last thought from David that he penned before he died. It's an excellent thought. It's an inspiring thought if you stop to think about what he's saying. He's saying, you know, the thorns, the curse of the earth, the curse that has touched my heart and my marriage and my kids and the whole world. The whole world has been subjected to futility, tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and sinkholes and trains that derail and people who murder and rape and kill and steal. All the thorns everywhere one day will be set ablaze and burned into oblivion. And the thought of those thorns, the things that came into the world by sin that caused such pain, shall not even enter into your mind. We will not even have memories of these kinds of things. This is how he closes out his life. He says, one day paradise will be restored. There'll be no more thorns. Thorns in my heart that want to wander away from the God I love. Thorns of other people's slander. Thorns of having even to watch the news and just feel the thorns. Just how can people do those kinds of things? Oh, all gone. All gone. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away with all the thorns. Fire, Peter says, fire will purge the place. The heavens will roll up like a scroll, a new brand new earth. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a shout, a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and there and he will be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, mourning, crying or pain or thorns for the old order has passed away. Behold, all things are new. I love what Jesus says. Nothing that causes sin will enter that city. The thorns will be gone uh, Evil will be stomped upon and the good shall conquer. That's the hope of our lives. Good triumphs over evil. Every injustice will be settled. Remember what Jesus said. You'll be vindicated. 
You will be vindicated. That is your legacy for the Christian, for, for Christian people. Don't be afraid of those who threaten you, for the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. David knows that he, he can trust God. He doesn't need to defend himself. He can put his life in God's hands and everything will resolve. The godless are like thorns. All the thorns will be taken care of, and one day they shall be no more. You know, I have to admit something to you. Last night, I watched a chick flick with Barb. (laughs) That's the 1998 remake of Cinderella called Ever After. You know, with Drew Barrymore? I loved it. (laughs) You know what? I didn't cry or anything. (laughs) However, I loved the scenes that are like the gospel. Let me tell you, the wicked stepmother, she is so wicked, unbelievable actress. You wanna reach through that screen and just, she and that stepdaughter, so evil. And Cinderella endures so much horrendous torment and there's just such a soul-satisfying enjoyment when the first shall be last and the last shall be first and then the prince comes for that persecuted bride and then the bride is the queen and has all the power and the wicked stepmother is there with the wicked stepdaughter and now, now you want to talk about it? (laughs) Yeah, that kind of thing. Just... Just amazing. I, for me, that's what David's last words, his last thought is, someday good will conquer. Evil shall be no more. No more thorns, no more curse, but just righteousness. No sun to rule by the day because the light of the Lord's face lights uh, our entire existence. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love We just thank you for these seven verses. It's a song, a brief song that says so much about who you are, your great love for us, and your wonderful plan. We thank you for loving us so much. We look forward to that day when we see you face to face and good conquers all. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, closing song. You know how Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, follow my example as I follow Christ. I think David could say the same thing. Follow my example as I follow the Lord. And so in reflecting, I, I want to emulate the, the key things about David's life because his life was blessed. So here are the reflections for tonight's passage. David knew who he was in the Lord. He was nothing without him and everything with him. Secondly, David knew the qualities that made a godly leader, or strong Christian, doing the right thing out of a reverence for God. David knew, number three, that he wasn't perfect and that was okay because his salvation and his honor 
uh, was depending on God, dependent on God. And finally, David knew that good will always win in the end. Good triumphs over evil. So he can entrust his life to the Lord. He just could rest in God. You know what? In the end, God will make sure that everything comes out justly and with grace and with vindication. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love. Help us to remember who we are in you. Keep us in a humble state as you work in our hearts and lives. Remember to do the right thing, to have a reverence for God. And Lord, to look to you in your perfection and not our own. And to trust our lives to the God who will triumph in the end. And because you triumph, we triumph with you. We're so grateful. We love you. Cast our cares upon you because you care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't forget about prayer at the cross always. We'll see you Sunday. God bless you.